A note before we begin. This episode features discussions of incest, sexual abuse, and violence. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. When someone disappears, investigators piece together what happened based on the information at their disposal. The same could be said of history. Our window into the past are the records that survived. Letters, journals, logs, written by those who were there to experience it. But like any witness, these accounts are informed by bias, perception, and a desire to present themselves and their allies in the best light. That's especially true for those who wrote knowing their words would shape our perception, like historians, biographers, journalists, and founding fathers. This is a 200-year-old mystery wrapped up in one of the world's most famous conspiracies. It's a story that's been told before, usually with one question in mind. What happened to the celebrated daughter of America's third vice president? But today, we're going to tell it a little differently. Because while researching this case, I found other questions that deserved answers too. Like what secrets about her life disappeared with her or were destroyed at her request? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a child prodigy turned bell of diplomatic society who walked the halls of the original White House. On New Year's Eve, 1812, she boarded a ship and was never seen again. Her name is Theodosia Burr Alston. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This is Theodosia's story. It doesn't belong to her famous father, Aaron Burr, the most vilified statesman in American history. But pulling Theodosia out from behind his towering shadow isn't easy. Their stories are inextricably connected. Because as any biographer will tell you, they were incredibly close. 
The point is often underscored, using words like devoted, obsessed, and unusual, occasionally describing their connection as a morbid fondness. Even historian Richard Cote, who spent years weeding out historical slander and rumors to determine the true nature of the Burr family, wrote, quote, Aaron Burr was Theodosia's god. Theodosia was Burr's prodigy and vision. They were far more than soulmates. Theodosia and her father were emotional Siamese twins who occupied separate bodies but shared a single heart. So to better understand Theodosia, we're going to start with her so-called god, the man best remembered as the disgraced politician who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. By 1756, Aaron Burr's family had been living in the New World for a few generations, and they've done well for themselves. And as much as America has an aristocracy, the Burrs are aristocrats. They've earned their status by serving their communities as religious scholars, Presbyterians. Aaron's grandfather, Jonathan Edwards, is considered one of the most prolific theologians of the colonial era, known for delivering sermons of fire and brimstone. His father, also a reverend, helped found and later served as president of the College of New Jersey, better known today as Princeton. Aaron has a lot going for him right off the bat. He's born into a reputable upper-class family, but before he can form explicit memories, tragedy strikes. Four times in quick succession. Aaron's father, mother, and maternal grandparents all pass away before his third birthday. Orphaned, he and his sister Sally are taken in by their uncle, who raises them how their parents would have wanted, prioritizing God and education. Thanks to their father's hefty endowment, they're given private tutors, hands-on instruction, the works. Aaron loves a little mischief and occasionally gives his uncle a hard time, but he's also a bit of a prodigy. He applies to Princeton at age 11. After he's rejected from his father's beloved school, he hits the books harder, and two years later, at 13, he gains admission into their sophomore class. At school, Aaron's an overachiever, he eats and sleeps as little as possible so he can study for 16 to 18 hours a day. He especially loves reading about Prussia's King Frederick the Great and his triumphant rise to absolute power. Princeton teaches Aaron to be a free thinker. He becomes less interested in religion than his predecessors. After he graduates winning prizes in English, Latin, and Greek, he volunteers to serve in the Continental Army and fight on behalf of the colonies. Despite constantly rubbing George Washington the wrong way, he rises in rank to colonel and establishes himself as a prominent figure in the revolution. But unlike many other famous revolutionary figures, he feels entitled to status and power. Most others are first-generation Americans, first to go to college, first to trade in a blue collar for a white one. Washington, Jefferson, Adams, Hamilton, they care about political ideology and democracy. Granted, their democracy doesn't include all Americans, or even most. These are enslavers who viewed women as second-class citizens, but nonetheless, they're ideologists. When it comes to politics, Aaron, on the other hand, is more of an opportunist. By some accounts, he doesn't know what virtue is. He's intelligent, charming, and pragmatic, but snobby and self-serving in his ambition. He doesn't necessarily care if America is a republic or a monarchy, 
so long as he's sitting on the equivalent of a throne. He literally calls politics a game of fun and honor and profit. After the war, Aaron establishes a successful law practice in Albany, New York, and uses the money to fund his expensive taste. He loves excess, lavish clothes, imported wine, and cigars. Throughout his life, he overspends on extravagant decor to fill his mansions. His ostentatious desire to impress pushes him to the edge of bankruptcy, so he spends most of his time thinking up get-rich-quick schemes and conspiring to gain influence. And he takes great care not to leave behind a paper trail. Because as he told one of his law clerks, things written remain. In the fall of 1777, at the age of 21, Aaron Burr's life takes a turn. He meets and falls for a woman named Theodosia Bartow Prevot. There are a few things about their blossoming love worth mentioning. First, Aaron's reputation as a womanizer has preceded him. At five foot six, he's been given the nickname Little Burr, and Little Burr has shamelessly flirted his way through life, leaving behind broken hearts and a couple of out-of-wedlock children in his wake. Second, and maybe most importantly, Theodosia's a married woman with five kids. And she's not just married to anyone. Her husband, Lieutenant Colonel James Prevost, is a British officer and a loyalist to the crown. The US signed the Declaration of Independence a year ago. We're six years away from the end of the revolution. James and Aaron are quite literally fighting on opposite sides of a bloody war. Aaron, however, doesn't seem to care. He's completely taken with Theodosia. Not because she's super beautiful or rich, but he's yet to meet a woman who challenges him, who his enormous ego considers an intellectual match. Theodosia's well-read and well-educated. She can debate the merits of Voltaire, shares his love of French culture, and she thinks Aaron is brilliant, which he certainly enjoys. The fact that she's married to another man just makes all of this more fun. Now, whether Aaron and Theodosia's relationship becomes intimate during her marriage is still up for debate. They make their affection for each other known, which leads to more rumors, but it's impossible to know for sure. Conveniently for Aaron, a door opens for him to swoop in. In 1781, Theodosia's husband dies while stationed in Jamaica. Six months after news reaches the States, he and Theodosia marry. And less than a year after the ceremony, on June 21st, 1783, they welcome their first child, the real star of this episode, Theodosia Burr Alston, or as her father calls her, Miss Prissy. To distinguish her from her mother moving forward, I'll refer to her by her other nickname, Theo. In December, 1783, the Burrs move to New York City. There they have another baby girl, Sarah, who everyone calls Sally. Aaron's career as an attorney takes him on the road a lot, but he's about as hands-on as a father can be through letters carried by foot or horseback. He demands that his wife write to him at least once a day with updates of what's happening at home. The good, the bad, the insanely mundane. Unfortunately, over the next few years, there's plenty of bad news to share. Everyone's health is shaky. Aaron, Theodosia, Theo, Sally. Theodosia experiences two stillbirths. Then in October, 1788, Sally dies from a sudden illness, leaving Theo alone to carry the burden of her father's incredibly heavy expectations. See, Aaron bucks societal norms and educates his daughter like he would a son. 
He demands rigor, discipline, and excellence from her. And by all accounts, Theo rises to meet every challenge. She proves to be as smart as both of her parents, if not smarter. She learns to read and write by age three. By nine, her penmanship looks like a trained calligrapher. By 10, she has a command of French and Latin and reads the entirety of Edward Gibbon's six-volume series, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. She studies geography and arithmetic, alongside piano and dance, alongside fencing and pistol marksmanship. Like Aaron, she grows up on Greek classics and stories of Russian monarchs. Theo becomes exactly what her father wants for her, a girl without peers. And eventually, a woman fit to be president or queen. Greed, revenge, lust. Murder investigations often pinpoint why someone has been killed, but not necessarily who did the killing. Every Tuesday on Unsolved Murders, meet the victims, suspects, and investigators of the most notorious criminal cases in history. Part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show, Unsolved Murders transports you to the scene of a crime, its ensuing investigation, and every attempt to solve the case. You'll soon discover that the murder isn't always the most shocking part of the story. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And gift mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Theodosia Bartow Burr dies in May 1794, likely from stomach cancer though the hemlock and mercury prescribed by her physicians probably didn't help. Her 12-year-old daughter and namesake is home when it happens. Theo spent the past few years taking care of her mother as her health slowly failed, balancing the role of caretaker with her grueling studies. And for much of that time, her father has been away. For the past 11 years, ever since becoming a father, Aaron Burr has leveraged his success as an attorney and reputation as a war hero to climb the political ladder. He first got elected to the New York State Assembly, then appointed Attorney General. Now he's a member of the United States Senate. He's sitting in Congress in Philadelphia when he receives the letter about his wife's passing. The news devastates him. When Theodosia first fell ill, Aaron wanted to resign from the Senate to attend to her, but she wouldn't allow it. For Aaron, Theodosia was more than a wife. She was his life partner, sounding board, and most trusted confidant. Decades later, he'll call her, quote, the best woman and finest lady he ever knew. Her death leaves behind an enormous emotional vacuum. By almost every account, he looks to his daughter to fill that void, and Theo works tirelessly to be whatever he needs. 
There's little to no record of Theodosia expressing emotion or grief in the wake of her mother's passing, probably because at 12 years old, she knew her father needed strength. His letters would seem to suggest as much. He praises his daughter's stoicism and fortitude. And of course, he ensures her education doesn't skip a beat while he's away. By 16, Theo's in charge of running the Burr Estate, a mansion in New York City called Richmond Hill. There, she entertains leaders from all over the world, everyone from the chief of the Iroquois Confederacy to a French king to past and future presidents of the United States, like Washington, Monroe, and Madison. As a host, she dazzles her guests. Many have never met a woman so well-read and articulate. She's described as one of the most brilliant women in America. A few take issue with the fact that she's not a skilled seamstress or cook, but even they are charmed by her beauty, her delicate frame, large expressive eyes, and auburn hair. One guest describes her as having a, quote, flashing wit that made her the ruling spirit to every circle. Once, the mayor of New York joked that Theodosia shouldn't board ships because her spark might blow up any barrels of gunpowder. Soon, prospective suitors line up to court Theodosia. They escort her to dances, dedicate volumes of poetry to her. Among those rumored to have taken an interest are the painter John Vanderlyn, future literary icon Washington Irving, and Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark fame. Then in 1800, while Theodosia's impressing dignitaries, her father wins the presidential election on a ticket with Thomas Jefferson, thereby beating their rivals, the Federalists. The plan was always for Jefferson to be president, but at that time, there's no way for electors to differentiate who they want as vice president and president, so both Aaron and Jefferson end up receiving an equal number of votes, which causes quite the storm. Long story short, a bunch of politicians from both parties rally against Aaron to make sure Jefferson gets the seat. Whether or not Aaron tries to become president, no one's totally sure. Jefferson, however, walks away paranoid, suspecting Aaron conspired to undermine his authority. Through it all, Aaron secretly writes his daughter coded letters, keeping her informed of everything that's happening, which if nothing else, is an indication of his real loyalties. After so much controversy, Aaron spends the summer of 1800 in New York with his daughter. And by the end of the year, Theodosia finally chooses a suitor. In early 1801, at 18, she marries a 21-year-old Southerner named Joseph Alston. He's the eldest son and heir to an enormous fortune made from his family's rice operation, operating on enslaved labor. As Joseph's wife, Theodosia moves to South Carolina and assumes her expected role as mistress of the manor, which includes managing 200 enslaved men and women. The transition isn't easy, and the weather, swamps, mosquitoes, and accommodations leave a lot to be desired. As much as she loves her new husband, Joseph's not what you'd call an intellectual peer. Theodosia misses New York, her old life, her friends, and of course, her father. Almost immediately, she convinces Joseph to stop and visit Aaron on their honeymoon on their way to Niagara Falls. Pretty soon, she'll find any and every excuse to travel north. But in May 1802, less than a year after the move, Theodosia gives birth to a baby boy, Aaron Burr Alston, named after her favorite person in the world. 
Unfortunately, the joyous occasion comes with a dark lining. After the birth, Theodosia suffers from what is now believed to be a prolapsed uterus. But at the time, physicians can't or won't diagnose what's wrong, let alone find a remedy. Her condition means she can never have another child. For the rest of her life, she endures debilitating pain, spending many days believing every second could be her last. Meanwhile, the best doctor's money can buy basically suggests she take cold baths to ease the pain. To add insult to injury, some also accuse her of being a hypochondriac, saying her pain is all in her head. Worse still, her family's legacy, everything she and her father have worked and sacrificed for, is about to shatter in a million pieces. In 1804, the tides of Aaron's political career turn. After what happened last election cycle, Thomas Jefferson wants a different vice president. So, looking for other opportunities, Aaron puts in a bid to become the next governor of New York. The problem is, there's someone who really doesn't want that to happen. Aaron's political nemesis and fellow attorney, Alexander Hamilton. The rivalry between Burr and Hamilton dates back more than a decade. Aaron defeated Hamilton's father-in-law to get elected to the Senate, and Hamilton still carries a serious grudge. In 1804, when Aaron tosses his hat in the ring for governor, Hamilton uses the press to wage a massive slander campaign to destroy Aaron's chances of winning. Now, that's an oversimplification. There's more to Hamilton's concerns. He and Aaron share a host of personal, political, and ideological differences. Essentially, Hamilton considers Aaron a self-serving man with little to no respect for public service, which, as we've covered, is pretty accurate. But that doesn't mean all the attacks on Aaron's character are justified or true. For Aaron, one remark in particular crosses a line. On April 24th, 1804, a letter is published in the Albany Register. In it, the author refers to a conversation that supposedly happened over dinner between Hamilton and some influential men. Hamilton calls Aaron a dangerous man who ought not to be trusted with the reins of government. The letter's author then writes, quote, I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr, but he doesn't. He never mentions what Hamilton actually said. He just calls it a still more despicable opinion. It's an indictment by implication. He lets his readers fill in the blanks, which as you can imagine, leads to some wild speculation. Aaron demands Hamilton publicly own up to whatever slanderous remarks he made, but Hamilton refuses. So the two men settle on a pistol duel, and well, we all know what comes next. Hamilton misses, and Aaron doesn't. Hamilton dies from his gunshot wound about 36 hours later. Despite the fact that both men agreed to the proceedings and followed established precedent, Aaron Burr is charged with murder and shunned by the political establishment, but he avoids arrest by fleeing to the South. Theo, on the other hand, could only see the situation through her father's eyes. As historian Charles Pigeon put it, Aaron had shaped his daughter's mind and conscience so much that, quote, he was her conscience. And watching her father's dreams and aspirations fall apart only makes Theo's anxiety and health worse. Aaron writes his daughter letters of concern from afar, but he doesn't run to her side or waver in his ambition. 
Before the murder charges against him are dropped, he pivots and charts a new path. He sets his sights on creating a new country. See, Aaron knows America has a vested interest in Western expansion. As vice president, he watched the Louisiana Purchase happen. Plus, there are rumors that the US might invade Spanish Mexico any day now. So Aaron thinks to himself, if the country's going to war anyway, why not leave the charge myself? He can take control of Mexico and the Gulf, establish New Orleans as its capital, and position himself as emperor. If Napoleon could do it in France, why can't he? Aaron sets his plan into motion. He finds allies, Cole's support, looks for funding. He even runs back to the English crown to see if they might help. Excited, Theodosia writes to her half-brother about the new settlement which she's about to establish. But the plan doesn't work. Word of Burr's Western conspiracy reaches Thomas Jefferson, and it's squashed before it can get off the ground. Aaron's charged with treason and accused of conspiring to lead a secessionist movement in some Southern states. He's later acquitted, but presumed guilty by most. Cities across America actually hang him in effigy. It's so bad that Aaron flees to Europe and lives in self-imposed exile. No one wants anything to do with him except his daughter and protege, the woman he envisioned would succeed him as Empress of Mexico. While he's in Europe, she manages his contacts, handles his messages, and raises money to ship overseas. Reflecting on his misfortunes, she writes to him saying, quote, "'You appear to me so superior, so elevated above other men. I contemplate you with such a strange mixture of humility, admiration, love, and pride. I had rather not live than not be the daughter of such a man.'" Three years after sending that letter, Theodosia's son, Aaron's grandson, dies at 10 years old. Grief-stricken and ill, Theodosia enters a depression. She writes to her father saying, quote, "'There is no more joy for me. The world is a blank. I have lost my boy. My child is gone forever.'" Her father returns to New York from Europe that July, but she's too sick to visit until another six months go by. Then on New Year's Eve, 1812, she boards a ship, excited for the long-awaited reunion. But the boat never arrives. Theodosia's never seen again. Now all of this misery, these events that changed the face of American history were set into motion by a comment allegedly made by Alexander Hamilton at a dinner party. What was said about Aaron Burr that was so much more despicable than calling him a threat to democracy? that both men decided were worth dying over. To this day, no one knows, but it's possible Theodosia did. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? 
Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Theodosia Burr Alston boards the Patriot on December 31st, 1812. The 63-foot, one-year-old schooner is supposed to be fast. The trip from Georgetown, South Carolina to New York should only take about five or six days. Theodosia is accompanied by a family friend, Dr. Thomas Green, in case her health needs tending to. But all the other passengers are either staff or crew. Sometime around noon, Theodosia kisses her husband goodbye. Joseph climbs into a small rowboat, paddles to shore, and watches the Patriot disappear into the horizon. According to him, the winds are moderate and fair, ideal weather for a safe journey. But weeks pass and the Patriot never arrives in New York. Theodosia and everyone else on board are never seen again. So what happened? Well, that depends on who you ask. A hundred years after Theodosia's disappearance, the New York Times publishes an article called Mystery of Aaron Burr's Daughter Baffles a Century. It detailed all the most popular theories at the time, and these stories really run the gamut. The genres range from horror to thriller to romance. In some, Theodosia runs off into the sunset with a pirate lover. In others, she's kidnapped and held captive in an exotic land, maybe Bermuda. Sometimes she lives, sometimes she doesn't. When she doesn't, the methods of murder vary as well. Cannon fire, walking the plank, in one version, she's killed for resisting the advances of the famous privateer Jean Lafitte. Now, as you can probably imagine, there is no direct evidence to support any of this. A lot of it is the equivalent of fan fiction. But pirates and privateers were known to patrol the waters off the Carolina coast, and more than one pirate reportedly confessed to killing her on their deathbed. One of them could have been telling the truth. But a far more likely scenario of what happened to Theodosia and the Patriot deals with not pirates, but art. In 1869, a North Carolina doctor named William Poole makes a house call to one of his patients, an older woman. This patient trades a portrait that's been hanging in her home in exchange for the doctor's services. It's an oil painting of a young woman with nice clothes, delicate features, auburn hair, and piercing black eyes. In other words, it looks eerily similar to Theodosia. And as the painting's origin story suggests, it just might be. The woman's husband used to apparently scavenge shipwrecks for a living. Right around the time the Patriot disappeared, he supposedly looted a pilot boat that washed ashore on Nags Head Island in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. No one was aboard. There were no signs of blood or a struggle. In fact, a table was still set for breakfast, but the cabins were in disarray and the ship had clearly been battered. So he steals a bunch of stuff, including the portrait, which he then gives to his wife, who then gives it to William Poole. Now, Dr. Poole knows about Theodosia's disappearance. He's convinced that it's her in the painting. He spends a good portion of his life trying to confirm as much. The reason this theory is so plausible is because it seems to support what most people believe happened, that the Patriot met with a devastating two-day storm at sea. According to logbooks, the storm hit the Carolina coast on January 2nd, two days after Theodosia set sail. 
Other, much larger vessels reported extensive damage. So it's very possible the Patriot didn't survive the squalls. And if it didn't survive, there's apparently a pretty good chance it would have washed ashore somewhere near Nag's head. Meaning the wreck that washed ashore might've actually been the Patriot and the painting, Theodosia. There's no reason to believe Theodosia survived her trip to New York. It's what her father and husband believed then and what most assume happened now. But as I mentioned at the start of this episode, the mystery of Theodosia Burr Alston goes far beyond her disappearance. The story of her life can be read in two very different ways. In the first, she's the beautiful, intelligent, devoted daughter of a misunderstood politician. Born into a family experienced in loss, she learned at a young age, like her dad did before her, that life is precious. No one can be relied upon for long, so she devoted herself to the family she had, to the father who showered her with affection, afforded her agency, presented her with rare opportunities, and who made her, in one biographer's words, without question, the best educated woman in the United States. In this version, Aaron Burr doesn't deserve his status as an American villain. He should be praised as a parent and a politician. The love and attention he paid to Theodosia is evidence that he was a man ahead of his time, even an early feminist. In this version, Aaron's progressive policies are indicative of his real character and his actions speak louder than the slander of his enemies. While in office, he defended a free press, broke up banking monopolies, supported electoral representation for all citizens, fought against anti-immigration sentiments, and proposed the abolition of slavery 80 years before the Emancipation Proclamation. He wanted his daughter to rule a country for no other reason than they both believed she was capable and qualified. The love and esteem they shared was admirable. But in the other version, Theodosia's the beautiful, intelligent, devoted daughter of a politician and the victim of incest. It's unknown if the whispers began during Theodosia and Aaron's lifetime, but the implication of incest was popularized by writer and biographer Gore Vidal in his book, Burr, a Novel. Now, Vidal admitted he made it up as possible context to fill in certain holes in Aaron's story. But in Richard Cote's book, Theodosia Burr Alston, Portrait of a Prodigy, he writes that scholars, quote, gave it serious consideration for one simple reason. It made sense and had a ring of truth about it. According to theories that support the idea of incest, this version of Aaron is everything his detractors accused him of a man driven by self-interest, not a politician with progressive values, just someone who adopted whatever policies benefited his career. He propped up friends in high places and constantly leveraged his political office to make money and sometimes quite literally abandoned his post to do so. He saw value in educating his daughter for no other reason than she was his one and only surviving heir and the gateway to his legacy. Theodosia's unusual love for her father was a symptom of a trauma bond, common in survivors of incest. Aaron controlled his daughter's childhood because he wanted her to worship him so he could abuse her devotion. In this version, Aaron showered Theodosia with affection as a form of manipulation and used her as a pawn. 
He married her off so he could have access to Joseph Alston's pocketbook. He kept his daughter on retainer for his needs. And one could argue that the evidence of his character is best revealed by how he treated the women in his life. How after Theodosia lost her son and fell hopelessly ill, he didn't visit. In fact, he expected her to board a ship and come to him. Which takes us back to Hamilton's secret accusation in 1804. Some writers have speculated that it's possible he accused Aaron of having an inappropriate relationship with Theodosia. Hamilton only ever admitted that his opinion was extremely severe and that he stood by what he said. But as author Arnold Rogo pointed out in his book, A Fatal Friendship, Hamilton tended to give people code names in his writing. And the one he used for Aaron Burr was Savius, after the ancient Roman who was tried for sexually assaulting his nine-year-old son. Not to mention, Aaron spent his entire public career shouldering personal attacks, but only one comment led to a life or death duel. Is it any wonder authors have made the incest speculation? I mean, when Theodosia was just a teenager, Aaron wrote to her often about his sexual conquests and fixated on her in a way that was said to be uncommonly intense and filled with eroticism. Before his duel with Hamilton, he instructed Theodosia to burn all the erotic letters he kept stowed away somewhere tied in red ribbon. We'll never know who those letters were written to or received from. None of this is direct evidence. If that ever existed, it's most likely lost. Remember, Aaron Burr didn't leave paper trails. Before running off to Europe, Aaron packed his most valuable papers and gave them to Theodosia for safekeeping. It's believed she had as many as 10 to 12 boxes. She took them onto the Patriot, intending to return them. But for obvious reasons, they've never been recovered. Aaron didn't write down much to begin with. So those papers probably represented a significant portion of his life's records. He then willed most of what remained to a business associate who destroyed many more after Aaron died. And six years before Theodosia disappeared, she wrote to her husband, instructing him to burn all her letters in the event of her death. And based on the records that have survived, it looks like he followed through. As a result, surviving firsthand accounts from Theodosia and Aaron barely fill out two small volumes. Compilations of similar figures fill shelves. Which is all to say, we can't truly know what happened to Theodosia Burr Alston, in death or in life. Maybe she was her father's victim. Maybe she was his co-conspirator. Maybe her ambitions were just as big as her father's and she fell asleep dreaming of a crown. We'll never know, because for some reason, out of shame, fear, loyalty, or her own self-interest, she adopted from her father's philosophy. Things written remain. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. 
Among the many sources we used for this episode, we found Richard Cote's book, Theodosia Burr Alston, Portrait of a Prodigy, incredibly helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boirot. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Disappearances was written by Connor Sampson, edited by Natalie Persofsky and Aaron Lan, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Aaron Larson, with sound design by Alex Button. I'm your host, Sarah Turney. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Lack of evidence, poor police work, clever criminals. Whatever the reason, some murders remain unsolved. Every Tuesday, Unsolved Murders explores the facts of a real-life cold case, part dramatic podcast, part old-time radio show. Join the ensemble cast of actors as they take you on an exhilarating journey through the crime scene and its ensuing investigation. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Unsolved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify.